Welcome back to the Rebel Alliance podcast. We are here in the studio today and joined by a friend of the show, Mike Wilkins. Mike Wilkins is a pastor, was a pastor of West London Alliance Church for 31 years. He's an author, he's a theologian, he's a friend, and he was my mentor. So we are really excited to have Mike with us in the show. Thanks so much for being here today, Mike. Hey, Nate, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. We have, we're going to start off with an opening question, and I know that this is a question that not only will our, our listeners love to hear us uh, debate, but uh, a question that uh, would tug on your heartstrings a little bit. And the opening question is, what Lord of the Rings character has the best theology? Well, thanks for the question. I've uh, given it a lot of thought, and it occurs to me that uh, the answer needs a little definition. The question needs to be narrowed. My thought is that uh, only human beings are capable of a theology because only human beings are made in the image of God. So I'm going to answer the question in terms of best theologian human, best theological human in <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. And I would give the answer to Tom Bombadil with a poke of the eye to those who've only seen the movie and never read the books. That's right. They, will, they don't even know who you're talking they about. have what, no idea. What actor played him? <laughs> Is so, he in the extended versions? <laughs> he's not. He didn't even make any director's cuts, actually. So yeah. Tom Bomb- Bombadil, why is he the best theologian? Well, because he is basically uh, the first human being. He's Adam. He's living uh, unmolested in a garden with his beautiful wife, Adam and Eve style, and has somehow survived any confrontation with any kind of reptiles that would ruin everything. <laughs> Plus, he's always happy, and I, I, I like happy people, especially if they are theologians. So I, I, think if, I think happiness, when applied to a theologian, should be called jovial. He's, he's jovial. I suppose. <laughs> Chris, you can't use Tom Bombadil now, so why don't, you, uh, why don't you cater to our movie-going audience and give us somebody else? Well, I took this a bit of a different way. I didn't use just a specific human. I went with Sauron. Even though his name is the Deceiver, hear me out. Um, the reason is is that he creates a whole new man. He created the orcs, so he's created a new man, which is very biblical. He's also post mill. He's trying to take over the world with his ideals and his morals, <laughs> even though we don't necessarily agree with all of what his his thoughts are. He was trying to change culture for the better, or in his viewpoint. So I went with him. Only because I assumed everybody would go with the hobbits right away, and right away Mike threw a curveball at me. So I went with Sauron the Deceiver, even though I think a better case can be made for Samwise. Uh, interesting you say Samwise, because my answer to this question was going to be either between, I couldn't decide between uh, Frodo or Samwise, and so I actually went completely, I, I, I had reasons for both, and I'm actually going to go with Bilbo. I think Bilbo... Um, throughout, through the Hobbit, he got exposed to uh, the lure of the ring, the lure of the temptation, and, um, and, and really his releasing of the ring into Gandalf's care, which uh, got given to Frodo, to, to me, it shows his, uh, his victory over sin, right? It shows that um, the indwelling sin of Bilbo uh, was he was no longer enslaved to it. He was listening to Paul's advice not to let anything master you. And uh, he, he overcame the temptation. Now, uh, he, he falters, as we all do. But uh, ultimately, I went, with, I went with Frodo. But I have to say, having listened to Mike, I, I'm slightly swayed. So I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out where I stand on this. Think it through. And in the spirit of robust dialogue and trialogue on a podcast, I would just like to point out to my friend Chris... 
that orcs are not reconstituted humans, they're reconstituted <laughs> elves. It, it works, though. <laughs> New creations, that's where I was going with that whole thing, guys. Yeah, you're right. Your point is not uh, in any way... <laughs> I, I think Chris just got pastored, yeah. <laughs> pastored by pastored. Mike. Uh, all right, so uh, we we'd love to hear from you in a a like or a comment uh, or a share uh, what your thoughts were on who in the Lord of the Rings trilogy has the best theology. And uh, and while we're on that topic, if if you are listening to this, if you can throw a like or a share or a comment into uh, this post, uh, it just helps us grow and it helps us get this content out to more people. So we would uh, really appreciate that. Now, the topic that we have today is, that we brought Mike in to talk to us about is, uh, is a, about death, about dying. It's actually a fairly morbid subject. Um, but uh, we've just talked about Lord of the Rings, and there's lots of death and dying in Lord of the That's Rings. True. So, so we're already on topic here. Um, and the reality is, is that I think most Christians get our theology about death and dying from Philly cheese commercials and Far Side cartoons, and uh, not necessarily from the Bible. So we kind of have this view that when we die, we, we go up into the clouds, and we're sort of disembodied spirits floating around with or without wings, with or without a harp. Uh, likely sitting on a cloud of some kind. And there's some sort of abstract thoughts of streets of gold and, and pearly gates and all these sorts of things. And so uh, what we want to do is, is take this topic that uh, touches all of us at a different level and, uh, and kind of explore it with you in the studio with us, Mike. So why don't you start off by, uh, by saying, did Philly Cheese commercials get it right? Is, is that, is that the, the biblical theology of death and dying? I think, uh, to speak in general terms, they got it wrong. But <laughs> on the other hand, having given <clears throat> this important question some careful thought, I realize that it's not totally anti-biblical, the Philadelphia cream cheese vision of heaven. For one thing, cream cheese was invented in the 16th century, so that puts it right in line with Martin Luther <laughs> and the Puritan, I mean, the, the, the Reformation. But uh, besides that, uh, Philadelphia is a city in which Westminster Seminary was formed in 1929. So there is a tie-in there, but it's not a very good tie-in. <laughs> and I think in actual fact, so much of the uh, commercial representation of heaven is, uh, people, is from people not taking heaven seriously, hmm. having fun with it, that we can pretty well count on all commercial representations of heaven being bogus. And so back to the Bible. Back to the Bible it is. So what we're saying is I don't get to sit on a cloud in my underoos playing a harp. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're thinking no. But brings up a good point, Chris, because um, I, I, we, I often like to ask Chris this because uh, you kind of came to, into the church and into the Christian faith later on in life. So for the, for the vast majority of your uh, life, Chris, like what did you picture when you pictured kind of wh what comes next? Well, there was always a, there was a movie called The Life After way back in the 80s. It was a comedy where... I'm not that um, old. <laughs> I am that old. Um, and it was I just wanted you to say it. A man with a book, you waited in a waiting room, and they opened up a book, and they checked off your name if you were in the good side or the bad side. And if you got in the good side, you just lived in basically paradise, which was remarkably the exact same as our world now, just without aging and without anything like that. So I always thought that heaven was just kind of clouds, a cloud city with big gates and angels with huge wings. And we would just walk in there and eat all day and hang out and party. That was my theology of heaven all the way up until just a few years, a few years ago. Interesting. So 
the uh, before we answer the question, well, what is what does the Bible say about death and dying? Uh, first, uh, why don't we comment on why we have Mike in here as our resident expert to talk to uh, <laughs> us about this? And uh, and the truth is, this subject is a little bit uh, is a little bit more uh, close to you than it is to some of us, Mike. Uh, mm-hmm. Why has this subject become so important to you in recent years? Well, it's especially close to me because it sort of represents the the idea of death represents a reassignment for. Uh, 31 years I pastored a church, and uh, death was never very far out of the picture because people who go to churches die and look for attention from the pastor. So all of my uh, all of my uh, pastoral years, three decades of them, uh, had death in the background, uh, threatening to come into the foreground at any moment because you never can tell who will die. And I uh, had the privilege of doing funeral rites and uh, the pastoral work that goes along with that in regard to the death of newborns, toddlers, uh, children, teenagers, newlyweds, young adults, and of course, as uh, the congregational members age, it's more likely that I'll do their funeral than ever. So I had, <clears throat> I had death on my mind and, um, and often in my experience for all those years. And then in uh, 2013, I was diagnosed, to my great surprise, with stage four colorectal cancer, given a year and a half to live. Uh, that was four years ago, so the, the plan has not gone according to the timing <laughs> originally set. Uh, but I've, been, uh, I've stepped down from the ministry because I'm no longer strong enough to carry it on. And uh, my, my new assignment, I believe, as uh, God has ordained it, is to move from the position in the church where it's most important to be an example of how to live into a more unique position of trying to be a good example of how to die well. So you've writ- recently written a book on this, Glory in the Face, mm-hmm. uh, and that came out uh, a, a number of months ago? Uh, last December. Last December. And uh, so that's called Glory in the Face. And uh, if you're listening, you can get that on Kindle. You can get that on Amazon. Uh, you can go to gloryintheface.com. Uh, which is a website where Mike continues to blog on the subject, and uh, you can get pointed to where to get the book. And uh, it, it's a great book, and, uh, and as somebody who knows you, I, I can simply say that uh, the, boy, the, the book sounds like you. When, when I'm reading the book, it, it, it makes me feel like I'm talking to you. Um, but that's why the, the subject is so important to you. So why don't we actually answer that question? Why don't we delve into the Bible? Tell us what the biblical view is of death and dying if it's not sitting on the clouds. Yeah, well, it's probably so far beyond our comprehension. I mean, the actual destiny of those who know Jesus and uh, have placed their life in his care, their, their faith in him, uh, there's, there's enough uh, mystery to it that we have to speak somewhat uncertainly. But my opinions have become, on the subject, have become more definite, uh, primarily because of one book, which significantly was written by the first uh, first academic who taught me to take the Bible seriously. He was a scientist who retired to the, uh, to the um, house he built on the St. Lawrence River just outside of Brockville where I was growing up. He did a lecture series uh, in our church uh, basement on uh, Tuesday nights that my parents attended. And basically all of his very many subjects that he spoke on that winter had either to do with the complete sovereignty of God over everything, so that science is figuring out how God did things and history is finding out what God did. 
uh, a very serious view of the sovereignty of God over all of life, including the dying and the death part of life. And besides that, uh, 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 an emphasis on uh, the seriousness of the Bible, the fact that the Bible needs to be taken seriously because it is what it claims to be. It is the Word of God. And uh, so out of that uh, interaction w between my family and this man who became such an influence in my life, I developed a view which is basically his. I adopted the view he has of how to knit together a couple of ideas in the New Testament that hardly seem to fit together. And one is the wonderful truth that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So one thing that a Christian uh, believing in Jesus can take seriously is when I die, I'm going into the presence of the Lord, which is all very well and good and, of course, true. But uh, another whole layer of thinking about death that has a hard time being fitted in with the idea of traveling into the instant presence of God, is that Jesus said quite certainly uh, that uh, there is an hour coming when all who are in the grave shall be raised, some to a resurrection of life, that would be the Lord's people, and some to a resurrection of judgment, those would be those who, have been sh who, shut, who successfully shut God out of their lives for their whole lives. They die without a savior, and they're raised from the dead, given bodies, for the purpose of standing before the judgment seat of God. So the standard idea, which I have learned to disagree with because of this one book called Journey Out of Time, and I should say the author because all of his works are online and a website. His name was Arthur Custance, and the website is custance.org. Uh, the idea is that in actual fact, when you lose your place in space, that is in the three dimensions of, of length and width and Height, when you lose your place in the world because your body has collapsed into death, you lose your place in time. So you come off the grid, so to speak, you come off the timeline whenever you died, whether we're talking about Adam dying at the very beginning of human history or me dying within the next couple of years or the last human being who's ever going to be born uh, dying. Uh, whenever a person dies, he's transported through over the timeline, outside the timeline, through space, so to speak, into the presence of the Lord. But that is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 5, when he says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You go immediately to the presence of the Lord, but in a body. So the conventional thinking that most of us have adopted sort of naturally, because it seems to be the only opinion out there, is in between the time of, say, my death and the day of resurrection, which is the world's last day, I would enter into the presence of the Lord in a disembodied state. I would be some sort of ghost or some sort of spirit. Eating cream cheese and sitting on a cloud. Having a great time, <laughs> as, you know, as the whole idea is sold, to, to, to die is to be to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord, perfectly happy, but without a body. And that is actually a very unbiblical concept. It's more of a Greek concept that when you die, I mean, from the Bible days, the Greeks thought that when you die, you become less human because now you're just some sort of ghost and have lost a whole lot of the charms of life. But the Hebrew mentality, which is certainly adopted by the Apostle Paul, for example, the other writers of the, of the Bible, assumed that uh, 
you needed a body in order to function. So then interesting things come up. The, the, the most interesting anecdotal part of the New Testament on this subject, I think, is that when the thief on the cross repents of his sin and turns to the Lord and asks him to remember him when you come into your kingdom, Jesus says to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise, which is not true from the human perspective. So the thief's mom and dad who were there watching him die in disgrace because of his crime would not have a sense or should not develop a sense. He's right there now in the presence of Jesus. It's not now. It would be then. So he would have to be transported out of time uh, and, and replaced on the time graph, so to speak, when the Lord calls him up out of the grave. So the experience of dying, as I understand it now, from what I think is a much more coherent and convincing use of the scriptures, is that when a person dies, you, you close your eyes in death, or you don't close your eyes, and like in the movie, somebody closes your eyes for you. And then in a twinkling of an eye, that is, as, as long as it takes to open your eyes, you see Jesus, who's returning to judge the world and to rescue from judgment all those who have placed their faith in him. Mm. With a great time gap that has absolutely nothing to do with the person who died. Just as so for me, again, personally, as a dying man, for all the years up until 1954, in the 20th century, um, I had nothing to do with time, and time had nothing to do with me. I didn't exist. And the moment I die... I go back into that position of having nothing to do with the time being. So there's no sense in which my loved ones are going to have to work hard on imagining me happy as can be in heaven because I'm not there yet, yet being the key word. So let me just interject there because I feel like, Mike, you're taking away all the things we like to say at funerals. That's a problem. <laughs> so, so if if uh, if I walk out of this studio and I get hit by a bus, and uh, one of the two of you are speaking at my funeral, you won't be able to say Nate's up there looking down on us. Exactly right, and that's awkward, but it can be funny. <laughs> I uh, I did the funeral for a man in his uh, early thirties or perhaps late twenties who died of complications on the operating table. I had taught him this unusual view of death and dying. And I had been a pastor of college and career university students before I was the pastor of the church that I stayed at. And uh, so to them, and so to him, I called it the great zap theory, that when you die, you get zapped off the time grid and zapped back on. So anyway, he was from a formal church, and I had nothing to do with his funeral because he had been raised in that church. Uh, But I went to the city where the funeral home was, and I went to the funeral home to visit the family and pay my respects. And there beside the open casket where his body lay was his widow, his young wife. And she knew what I was up to and some of the things I had taught him. And so in a voice loud enough for everyone in the funeral home to hear, I'll call him Bob, that's not his name. She said, oh, Pastor Mike, look at Bob. He got zapped. Oh, man. Which I just thought would be a confirmation to all of her relatives and his that there'd been nothing good coming out of London for all those weeks that he had commuted to London to hear me preach. Let me just interject for, 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 for anybody who's... Um, I just want to make sure I've processed out what you said. So you're saying that when we die, 
we cease to exist in the time frame until Jesus resurrects everyone at once. So when yes. you unfortunately pass away, and when I pass away, hopefully many years from now, at the same time we would be brought back to see Christ. Is that exactly right at the last moment? So First Thess- Thessalonians covers that in a passage that many people would call the, the rapture which I think in actual fact is the resurrection of the dead. There are those who are asleep in Christ. That's an interesting term to use, but fits with this idea that metaphorically speaking, in view of the fact that he doesn't exist just now, we're going to say he's asleep. And that's a pretty common phrase in the New Testament. Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death and he fell asleep. That's right. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Paul the Apostle repeats that phrase several times. Those who are asleep, those who are asleep, and then those who are dead in Christ, it's the same thing. And they will be right over the shoulder of the people who are alive when Christ returns. Those who are alive will see him, and they will be raised up with him, and their bodies will be glorified or or moved into the eternal condition. And then the resurrection of the dead occurs a split second after that. And that's Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, comfort one another with these words. And I think one of the practical comforts of understanding this is that though we will miss, uh, we do miss those who have died before us, we mourn their loss and we miss their presence, but they don't miss us right? because we who are in Christ are all together on the day of resurrection. And the, uh, the people who have survived until that point in history uh, are, are, are drawn to the Lord just the twinkling of an eye before all those who are in the grave. It seems to me like the um, the, the view that uh, there is some sort of because you're you're essentially describing that there is no intermediary state as uh, as Christians have traditionally understood it. So there's there's not right now some party going on in heaven full of ghosts of all the people who have passed away mm. for all of eternity. Nor is there any sort of party going on in hell <laughs> full of all the the mm. bad ghosts that have passed away. And it seems to me like uh, if you take this position that without a body the spirit is asleep, that the spirit is is uh, is sleeping and, and waiting for the great day of resurrection. The two things that come to my mind are, number one, it seems more true to the text, where whenever you read about the great day of judgment, it seems to be the day of judgment and not some idea that there are many days of judgment. And whenever you die, that's your day of judgment. But it seems to be talking about the day of judgment as, as this one great big event. And so this view that you're presenting would, would allow the scriptures to ring a little bit more true in, in discussing that. And then my other question, it would be, uh, I guess this would be a question, would be, was confusion over the intermediary state kind of where the the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory kind of came up? Like w- w- this idea that we got all these souls and, and they got to go somewhere. <laughs> so uh, would that be somewhere where that tradition came up? And I don't know exactly the origins of the idea of purgatory, but it certainly fits neatly in that spot. Right. Uh, it's more, I think, about how you need to suffer to some degree for your sin, which presents an incomplete view of what Christ did for us on the cross. But um, I'm not sure which was the chicken and which was the egg on this one. Right. But it seems like uh, we do a little bit of scriptural stick handling um, with with things like that when we mm-hmm. start thinking about an intermediary state that the Bible says very little about. Mm-hmm. So that's... Uh, 
I'll just throw in one more, <clears throat> one more scripture to try to prove my case, which is not my case, but Arthur Custance. The Second Corinthians chapter five talks about the groaning that Christians go through at the thought of being unclothed or being naked. And you've, I think you have to take that to mean disembodied. Right. So we are in this body, which he compares to a tent. One day the tent will fall apart, but we'll be moved into a house, which is to say into a, a glorified or a perfected body. And in between that day of resurrection and now, we have this natural unease, which is the fear of disembodiment. And you can't have a fear of disembodiment if you think that uh, Christians who die are going to be perfectly happy floating around in heaven. No vocal cords, but they can talk. No eyes, but they can see. No ears, but they can hear somehow, mm. as if none of those things are important. Right. And the trouble with that view, which is so um, widely held, is that it really lessens the significance of the resurrection from the dead. Right. If our loved ones who have died are with the Lord in perfect bliss without a body, so then what's the big deal about getting a body? But for Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, it's a really big deal. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. So we're going to take you immediately home to right. the Lord, who's not entering space and time until the last day. It's what C.S. Lewis says figuratively. When the author walks out on the stage, the play is over. The world goes on and on until Jesus comes back as the author and shuts the production down right. because there's a whole new drama about to start. And it, it seems to me, just as you're describing this view, there's a few things that come to, to my mind. I think about just the order of things. So uh, as, as Christians so often think about, you know, as you said, all the, the um, disembodied spirits floating around in heaven perfectly happy, uh, it seems to, to forget the order of creation, right? That God fashioned Adam, he, he made his body, and then breathed the spirit into him. And so we don't actually have any scriptural evidence um, from that standpoint of a spirit that just kind of was was floating around without a body, that humanity is the the meshing together of the material yeah. and the immaterial, and it seems like a very Gnostic idea for us to say, once we get rid of this, this horrible body, never mind the fact that God called it very good, um, then, then we can be happy and in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, exactly right. And the word spirit, as you know, in the languages of the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, is also the word for breath and the word for uh, wind. So it's, it's the picture we get in Genesis and the creation account is very much of an inanimate thing being formed of the dust of the ground. That's Adam's perfect body. And then God breathes into it or inspirits it or uh, blows into it, so to speak. And it's not blowing in a person. It's not, it's not uh, embodying some perfectly blissful guy who's floating around somewhere. But then gets trapped in a body. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Uh, but rather, it's, it's God animating, that's the same word, but in Latin, animating the, 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 the fleshly body with right. a spirit or a breath of God. Right. So that as long as God pleases to keep me, for example, alive. He will continue to keep my spirit in my body. And when the body fails, the spirit evacuates and there's no place to go except in the future. So right. he goes not back to the future, but forward <laughs> to the future uh, in a permanent way. There's no DeLorean. There's nothing back. like that. <laughs> 
just for anybody who's not close to death, I know you uh, you have alluded to the fact that you feel like you're on on the doorstep. Why why would you say this topic is something that Christians should be thinking about, focused on, and have a good theology of? Well, for starters, because every Christian may be very close to death, and uh, my 30 years of pastoring showed that. There was some tragic sudden deaths, and um, and then there were some deaths like mine with advance warning, although I could get hit by a cement truck tonight going home. So I hope not. It, we're all going together. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'll sit in the back and hope for a <laughs> rear-ender. But um, I think that uh, you know, every, every Christian, in order to have his wits about him, needs to be prepared. This could be my last day, or maybe tomorrow. And there's no particular reason to get very hung up about that, because that's always been true. But a theology of death, and a biblical understanding of death, is kind of essential equipment. Because sooner or later, suddenly or predictably, we're all going to go into that experience of being a dying person and then a dead person. Absolutely. And I, I think, uh, I, again, as uh, during the, the years that Mike mentored me, uh, one of the catchphrases of the pastoral apprenticeship was uh, ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And, uh, and one of Mike's goals was to get me ready to do any one of those things at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And, uh, and so we all, as Christians, ought to be ready to do at least two of those things mm-hmm. at uh, a moment's notice. So. Um, the, uh, as we wrap this up, so I just want to, uh, remind everybody of some of the, uh, materials that helped you arrive to the position that you're at. Uh, first of all, your book, which, uh, which is in some ways, uh, documenting your, uh, your experience of understanding your own mortality, uh, glory in the face, but much more than that, it's about, uh, how to get yourself ready to die at a moment's notice. And ready for anything. Actually, the subtitle of the book which is entitled Glory in the Face, is the face of Christ and the strength to face anything. And uh, those two uh, pieces of truth were brought together in a sermon series, which eventually evolved into a book. The face of Christ representing a clear knowledge of who Jesus is, as if we know him so well because we're looking at him face to face, figure of speech to say, intimate knowledge of Christ. And then the Apostle Paul's proof in 2 Corinthians, the first few chapters, that with that kind of knowledge of Christ shining in his heart, he really could take on anything that life serves up, which eventually was his death. But before that was all kinds of adversity, all kinds of torture, all kinds of adventures. And he was quite clearly able to face them all because he could see the face of Christ. That is, he knew Christ so well. So uh, gloryintheface.com is where people can go to get connected to uh, Mike's blog, uh, Mike's book. And some of the other resources you mentioned was just custance.org, yes. uh, which is where you can go to, to read about this. I think a lot of his books are available for order there and also available in PDFs yeah, online. All the books are in print. He died in 1985, but a, a little organization of people who loved him a lot have, uh, have gotten all his books into print. So you could order that book that I talked about, Journey Out of Time, from customs.org, but they're all on file on the website as well as PDFs. So you could read it for free or uh, own a book. 
And for those of you hearing the name Arthur Cousins for the first time, I would just encourage you. Uh, he's got a, a couple of books that have been very uh, formative for me, and I would recommend his book, Sovereignty of Grace, uh, was, a, was a great book that I actually read during the apprenticeship. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of good stuff at Custons.org if you head over there. Well, Mike, we just uh, want to ask you one last question. Why should everyone, every Christian, have five dead guys that they follow and read? <laughs> You're asking me that question because you know I have, and I've had five dead men whose pictures hang on my wall since I was an assistant pastor dreaming of a church of my own. And uh, what I thought at the time, and I've never regretted this strategy, is to keep close to me, if only by reading journals and sermons and autobiographies, of these uh, people, uh, I should keep close to me a short list of people who serve as good examples to me of the life I was dreaming of living. And that, ch- that list has changed over years for the uh, plain reason that I got old. So when I was 27, 28 years old, an assistant pastor, and aching to have a church of my own, one of my most important dead men was a man who became a pastor at the age of 22 and died at 29. So everything about what he was going through is relevant to me being of the same age. And more recently, that book became much less valuable to me, except of sentimental value, because he never experienced being a pastor in his 30s and 40s, let alone 50s and 60s. But men who did last a long time, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, have pretty well stayed on the list of five all along. And more recently, because my life has changed and now I'm in the business of dying Rather than pastoring, uh, I've added a couple of names that weren't there before. But in, it, but in their own individual ways, each of them serves as an inspiring example to me. So I thought rather than read widely as I can and get a little smattering of good example from all kinds of people to limited degrees, I would focus on a few and try every day. Uh, to read from one of them. So in the early days when I got a church of my own at the age of 30 and the church was small and uh, I had my mornings to myself, I would always spend the first half hour in my office at the church reading the works or the um, biographies of any one of these five. And that has served me well. There's something uh, really wonderful about being able to read a guy who has passed away and hasn't made a shipwreck of his life. Yeah. I remember one thing Matt Chandler once said that has always stuck with me is everybody's only a couple bad decisions away from shipwrecking yeah. their yeah. life. And uh, and I've remembered that. And so there's something about, uh, you know, being under the influence of men who who made it to the end and, uh, and didn't lose their faith. That was certainly uh, what I had included in the idea of collecting five dead men rather than five living men. I have a very good friend. He's, we've been companions in ministry from the early 80s when we met. And we sort of had a deal together. I would read the works of dead people, and he would read the works of living authors. <laughs> and it's a fine idea when we're meeting together and sharing with each other what we read to sort of diversify, except that some of his favorite authors crashed and burned. Right. And we were both young men and vulnerable and uh, aware of the fact that we could crash as well. We could rob money from the collection plate or do some scandalous thing that would end our ministries. And uh, so the fact that these five dead men made it to the finish line without messing up was very helpful and meaningful to me. 
Me and Nate have a similar thing. He reads the books and then he just tells me about them. <laughs> <laughs> so it works out well. That sounds functional <laughs> as well. It it's all about finding these little deals. <laughs> Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here with us today, Mike. Thanks for sharing this view with us. If you have any questions, uh, we'd love to hear about them. And uh, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode answering some of your questions on this particular view. Uh, but once again, just a reminder to uh, click that share button, click that like button, comment on these videos. It helps uh, extend our reach so that we can get uh, many more listeners joining the rebellion. Thanks for being here with us, and we'll see you next time. My pleasure. Thanks very much.